0: all lowercase. That's Shopify.com slash tech.
1: I'm D'Artagnan A. Williams. Do you go by DAW? Yes, sir. I do go by DAW, D-A-W, which are the initials, for D'Artagnan A. Williams.
2: Tell me about the first time that you even got the idea that you were going to steal somebody's identity.
1: The first time, I, I, I recall very vividly. I was laying on the living room floor, watching a basketball game and the capital one commercial came on
0: the capital one no hassle card has the nation's lowest long-term fixed rates zero dollar fraud liability and no telemarketing
1: <laughs> Dahl was
2: only 15 years old
1: and i connected that to the envelopes that i would see on the kitchen table
2: you saw this commercial on the air as for capital one and what was the thought that came into your mind
1: So I'm thinking this is access to to income. This is access to monies. But I didn't fully understand it. I didn't fully understand the significance of a credit card, but I knew my dad had one.
2: And when you're a kid and you see your parents with a credit card, it almost looks like this magical thing that you just swipe it and you get whatever you want, right?
1: That is, in fact, how one thought led to another in that session. Those thoughts took root. And um, ultimately, I stole my dad's identity.
2: Why your dad?
1: I knew my dad, the credit card bill was in my dad's name, so obviously my dad was the first target.
2: Dawes says that he grew up in a middle-class home. His mother was a stay-at-home mom raising four kids, and his dad worked for Louisiana State University. They had everything they needed, and food was always on the table.
1: I lived in a very structured home. Mom and dad remain married to this day, so the family unit, the family structure was there.
2: But Daw's hunger for more kept him up all night. He laid in bed, cooking up a scheme, trying to figure out how to gain access to his father's credit card. One night, when everyone was asleep, Daw slipped out of bed and quietly walked to the kitchen. He opened the trash can and there it was, an envelope with his father's Capital One statement. So what now?
1: So I, I began an investigation. I wanted to know when did the bill come, when was the bill paid? who actually had possession of the card. Was it my mom, was it my dad, was it perhaps both? I and mean, where can I find the card?
2: The credit card statement was a start. It told him that his father had a credit card limit of $5,000. It was a little bit of trial and error, right? Like you you didn't get it right the first time, right?
1: No, 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 it was, but it was trial and error by design. I wasn't like calling Capital One, pretending to be my dad. Um, initially, I would call Capital One and have casual conversation with customer service."
2: He quickly realized that the best plan of action wasn't to steal the card from his dad's wallet. No, that that would be too risky. Instead, he planned to call Capital One and open up a new card. This way, any money he spends he can replenish right before the end of the month. He figured his parents wouldn't even notice. In order to open up the second card, Da needed some key pieces of information. Some of it he already knew, like his dad's address and date of birth. But what about his father's social security number? For that, Da had to dig a little deeper. Luckily for him, his father kept his social security card in his wallet. And it worked. Da called Capital One, requested a new card with a cash advance, and a few weeks later, the money was in the mail. Why did you steal from your parents? Why did you do it?
1: And I've asked myself that question a thousand times. The predominant factor was curiosity. I was curious. I wanted to know if it could be done. And ultimately, I did do it. So the prevailing factor that caused me to steal my parents' identity at the age of 15 was not necessarily because I had to do it, but because more so, I I wanted to do it. I, I was curious and curiosity led to action.
2: What were you planning on buying once you had this card? And did you ever have plans on returning the money to your parents?
1: I did, I did. My intention were to were to flip the monies, or to invest them into the marijuana market and win at gambling, and then just simply replace it at bill time whenever I was sending the payment. But it didn't work. It didn't work
2: out that way. Daw's first victims were his parents, then his grandparents. But they won't be his last. He will go on to becoming a very successful identity thief, making millions of dollars off of people just like you and me. So you may be asking yourself, this episode is called How to Disappear. What does an identity thief have anything to do with disappearing? Everything. We started this series with the most extreme way of disappearing, which is faking your own death. Then we talked about people who actually need to disappear in order to survive. But those are extreme examples. Today, we're going to talk about why you should disappear. Maybe just a little bit, so that you won't be a target of the biggest fraud of them all. Identity Theft. I'm Javier Leva and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker. A daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. I really hope I'm not boring you guys with all this adulting and grown-up talk. I mean, talking about credit cards could really be a snooze fest. But out of all the scams you'll hear on this podcast, identity theft is actually the one that could very likely happen to you. And everything that an ID thief needs to know about you is already online somewhere. One in 10 people in the US lost money due to fraud. And I don't mean to throw numbers at you, but this is a big deal. Almost 10 years ago, in 2001, the FTC received a little over 300,000 complaints about fraud. To give you an idea, that's roughly the population of Lexington, Kentucky. In 2019, just last year, fraud complaints jumped up to 3.2 million. That's almost the entire population of Los Angeles, California. And you're probably thinking, Javier, those people are not me. ID thieves only target old people. And you think wrong. According to the FTC, more young people in their 20s reported losing money to fraud compared to older people. The point is, you're not safe. And I don't want to sound alarmist, but there are really simple things that you could do to make yourself less of a target. So why not do it? For that, we're bringing back Michael Basel, a privacy expert whose job is to make people disappear. I was looking at statistics and it shows that millennials are actually more of a target than the elderly, which I found that really surprising.
3: I think it's because of the availability of information on them online. Think about the elderly that probably do not use many social networks. They probably don't rely on email extremely heavily. They may not have a a big internet presence. However, the millennial or the younger person has everything online, everything in their email, and I might be able to get into your stuff digitally easier than I can by calling you or visiting you.
2: Millennials and people who have a big social presence have a 30% higher risk of being a victim of fraud than those who are less active online. But enough with the stats, let's get back to D'Artagnan Williams or Da. He went on to steal countless identities, so many that he can't even keep track. But before we do that, let's go back to the first time he stole his father's identity. So tell me about that first time that you got busted by your parents.
1: The first time that it uh, it came to notice was during a family meeting. Capital One called about a payment that had evidently been short. I was under the impression that $50 a month was uh, sufficient um, to make these payments and to do so on time. What I did not know at the time is that the more you use the card and the greater the balance, also that the minimum payment also increases.
2: At the end of the month, when the bill came in, his parents couldn't understand why the monthly minimum jumped up so drastically. They always kept their credit card balance to a minimum of $500. Now, the bill was more than $4,000. Something was really wrong here. They just couldn't figure out what. Daw's plan to repay the minimum balance on the card didn't exactly work.
1: Sending them a payment wasn't enough. My parents have been good consumers, perfect consumers. And um, it was out of the norm, and they called, and that's when uh, my mom learned that there was a $4,000 balance on the Capital One account, and she called a family meeting.
2: How did that go down?
1: My mom was determined to call the cops. My mom said, a lesson needs to be learned here, an example needs to be made. And, but my dad intervened and said, Linda, well, if we call the cops, you know, put the boy in jail. And I got away with it uh, on that occasion. But I, and I say got away, but I didn't really get away because I got caught. I got busted. But it did not turn me from um, committing further crimes.
2: There was a time where you stole the check from your mom's checkbook. Tell That's me about that.
1: Yeah, so I had access to my mom's checking account. And what I thought that I would do is still check out of the back of the checkbook, write it to myself, forge her signature, and take it to the local bank to cash it.
2: There was a flaw in his plan. He lived in a small town right outside New Orleans.
1: In St. Joseph, Louisiana, everybody knows everybody. The bank teller called my mom. That's when my mom discovered that I forced a check in her, and, and her name and attempted to cash it at the bank.
2: How's your relationship with them now?
1: I mean, my parents still don't own me to this day. We have a loving relationship, a very beautiful one. I did these, th- I did these things to my parents from the age of 15 to about 17. And, and I was forgiven, we've always maintained a very healthy relationship, even throughout my periods of incarceration. My parents were there for me then and, and, and remain supportive of me now.
2: To this day, Dahl's relationship with his parents remains strong. Despite putting them through hell, they never turned their backs on him. Even when Dahl turned to the streets to make a quick buck selling drugs, they were always there. By the time Dahl turned 19, he was a successful drug dealer, but even though he was a small-time delinquent, he had the instincts of a criminal mastermind. Talk to me about how much money were you making by the age of 25?
1: I was $3.1 million richer, all in cash. Can
2: you imagine a 20-something-year-old with $3.1 million in cash? Dahl explained to me that even though that was a lot of money, his ID theft business was a business, and all businesses have expenses.
1: But to give you a breakdown of how they look like and came about, I had a 40 member identity their organization 20 men, 20 women, 20 of which um, I call info recruits.
2: The info recruits are people who you and I interact with all the time.
1: And these were the people who were employed by everyday businesses, from commerce, local businesses. Restaurants, hotels, hospitals, tax preparation companies. These were my info office people who occupied places of business in one respect as an employee, but also doubled as a secure information for my white-collar crimes.
2: The waiter who served you at your favorite restaurant? He was working for DAW. So was the hotel employee who checked you in. And what about the guy who prepared your taxes? He was on DAW's payroll too. I had to ask Michael Basel about this. And I think what's surprising to me, and I don't know if it's surprising to the listeners, but the amount of people who we interact with every day who are just employees at a fast food restaurant or or works at a doctor's office who could be in cahoots with these identity thieves. I just, I guess ignorance is bliss. Well, and that happens all the time. There's
3: always an inside person. Think about the, the waiter at the restaurant struggling to pay the bills based on however, whatever tips he or she got that night. Well, now you approach that person and say, hey, carry this device, and for every card that you swipe, I'll give you 50 bucks. That's lucrative and very enticing, especially to people who aren't making much money to begin with.
2: What kind of people were these operatives looking for?
1: And having access to, for example, an entire database of a hospital or an entire database of a tech preparation company. You, you would need to have a system, a method to peer to that information. And for me, it was through car dealerships. I had info operatives at car dealerships. So that's how I would guarantee what stolen identity would be successful and which one would not.
2: Half of DAW's staff were info recruits. But the other 20 people on his payroll were what he calls field operatives.
1: The field operative is the individual who actually embodied the stolen identity.
2: This is the person who gets out and purchases items with the stolen identity. Daa would instruct the field operatives to buy thousands of dollars worth of stuff, jewelry, electronics, guns, with the purpose of reselling those items for a profit.
1: I had 20 of those, men and women. ready to diversify both in gender and race and age.
2: How much were you paying these field operatives?
1: So field operatives are assigned to five identities in one rotation. Mike compensated each field operative $2,000 a week on a salary base. It was not commission-based.
2: And as you can imagine, if the field operatives were getting paid $2,000 a week, they were expected to bring in much more. Dahl ran his business like a corporation. Each operative had a quota to meet for the day. There were books to balance, expenses to be paid. But all of this can't last forever.
1: I'm invincible. You know, I was smarter than the cops. And and at some point it became a um, cat and mouse game, cop and robber game.
2: But he wasn't invincible. In fact, he got caught over and over. How many times did you get arrested while doing this kind
1: of work? From the age of 18 to the age of 25, I was arrested 23 times.
2: And how many felonies do you have?
1: I have four state convictions and two federal convictions.
2: But after each arrest, Daw would refine his process, learning from his mistakes.
1: And then once I mastered it, once I learned the system, that's when the arrests stopped. But unmannoised to me, I was already under investigation for two long years by both the FBI, Secret Service, and State Police.
2: Being an identity thief took a heavy toll on his family. Daw's marriage fell apart, and he was absent from most of his kids' childhood. And this lifestyle, you reaped a lot of reward from it, but there was a lot you lost during this process.
1: Absolutely. And it had more of an effect on my children and, and my parents. I like to remind people that no man is an aisle, either directly or indirectly. The choices, uh, the decisions that he or she makes, indirectly or directly affects somebody. And in this case, it had a very adverse effect on my relationship with my children.
2: You've probably committed more identity theft crimes than you've been convicted of.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that number is incomparable. I mean, I was arrested, caught only 23 times, but there were thousands of identities stolen and compromised.
2: Do you remember the names of your victims?
1: Not all my victims, but some of them. I used to associate victims with their credit scores, and I remember some of those names.
2: Da told me that eventually he no longer saw his victims as real people.
1: In order to to victimize people at this scale and to do so repeatedly, there has to be a certain abandonment of conscience, and you're no longer looking at victims as victims, but rather you've got to look at numbers, and you you're equating humans with numbers. To get past your conscience and to do so repeatedly, it becomes a numbers game, and you force yourself into a dark space. You're no longer looking at grandma and granddad, you're no longer looking at single mom, you're no longer looking at military veteran, you're no longer looking at auntie or uncle. You're looking at what they can yield and do for you as it appreciates the numbers and credentials that make them who they are.
2: How does Da redirect the energy that made him such a successful identity thief? As despicable as his quote-unquote business was? he did actually make a lot of money, and that took energy and skills. You see, I've learned that con men and CEOs aren't very different. Both are smart, cunning, and they know when to seize an opportunity. The only real difference is that one is a skilled manipulator driven by greed, and the other is just a con artist. But all kidding aside, Da has the same skills as any successful entrepreneur. Da has reevaluated his life and it's using that same energy that made him a successful criminal and using it to teach people how to avoid being victims from identity thieves like him.
1: So from an instinct perspective, no, there's no desire, inclination or inkling whatsoever to engage or re-engage criminal activity. But in terms of having an interest in, as it relates to what's going on in cybercrime, that knowledge, that desire is, is real, alive and relevant
2: Many convicted felons have very little chances of actually making it once they leave prison. The system is just not set up to give people second chances. It's really kind of hopeless. But Daw has not only figured out a way to succeed as a businessman, he's now taking his ambition to a whole new level. This November, Daw is on the ballot. He's running for Congress.
1: I am running for Congress in the Louisiana 6th Congressional District. When we
2: come back from the break, Daw is going to reveal different tactics he used to steal people's identities.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.
2: I wanted to know exactly how he did it. How was Daw able to get away with these crimes for so long? He shared with me some tricks of the trade. Let's talk about social engineering. In order to access somebody's account, you used to call the victims homes. Talk about that. how you would social engineer that conversation.
1: So that component of social engineering is, called, is what I call studied deception. An example of that is that I have the, the targeted victims full credit file in front of me. I know everything about them.
2: He knew everything about them, except for a few personal details that only his victims would know. For example, their best friend in high school, or the name of their childhood dog. And without this information, it would be impossible to access their account. So he would pick up the phone and call the person he was about to rip off.
1: And I would just go through their credentials to disarm them, basically. And once I've told you your social security number, of your date of birth, your primary billing address, if I've initiated with your social your date of birth, most probably in all the cases, you're going to easily give me the dog's name. Uh, your mother's name or whatever that added security feature is on that existing account and and it was successful each and every time
2: so essentially by offering them information that you shouldn't know about them you're developing trust right right I mean who wouldn't fall for that because only legitimate organizations would know these things about me right 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 Social engineering can take on many forms, but essentially social engineering is a technique con artists use to deceive you in order to gain access to your private information. Here's Michael Basil again. It's me getting you to do something
3: you probably shouldn't do. This is usually over the phone or it could also be in person.
2: And you actually did this on our previous episode to find out where your friend was staying at which hotel, right?
3: I think that's a classic example of social engineering. I'm convincing an employee to tell me something that he or she should not tell me. And in order to do that, I'm going to lie and cheat and steal and be deceitful. But in the end, I usually get what I want.
2: You know, you're not doing it for malicious purposes. You're doing it as an exercise to find your friend, right, for sport. But how would somebody who wants to steal your identity use social engineering tactics to get to you?
3: Social engineering deals with the human element. We are all human, we make mistakes, we have weaknesses. And if I can exploit those weaknesses, I might be able to get into your account. I might be able to convince your email provider to reset a password or convince some other financial institution that I am you and help, I need access to my account. If I can get that one employee to break the rule or let me in, now you've got a big problem.
2: In my interview with the identity thief, he was saying that he would use social engineering tactics to figure out people's security questions. He would call the actual victim and make up a story, say that he was working at a bank or whatever, and he would offer up their name, their social, their address, all these pieces of information that a regular person shouldn't have. But by doing that, he was disarming them. And then he asked them, like, what's your dog's name? What city were you born in? Nine times out of ten, they would just give it up.
3: It's extremely common. One situation was my uh, client was victimized over Facebook. The identity thief targeted her over Facebook and then issued her Facebook quizzes. That survey or that quiz might be. What's your dog's name or what was the first car you drove? Post a picture of it and it sounds innocent. In actuality, all that person doing is trying to extract the information that can be used to answer things such as your security questions or the things that the credit bureau or the
2: financial institution may ask you in order to prove that you really are that person. But social engineering is not always a bad thing. Michael says that he uses this technique to find weak spots for his clients.
3: A a company hired me to test them, really to test their employees. I contact human resources and I just say, uh, hey, this is Mike in IT. I'm trying to add the newest employees to our records management system. And I, I don't know who they are. Who are the two people that were just hired last week? And nine times out of 10, the companies will say, oh, do you mean Susan and Mark? Then they'll start giving their information, maybe their extensions. And when I call the newest employees of a business, those are the most likely employees to tell me anything I want to know. I can usually get their passwords out of them. I can get them in front of the computer. I can make them type commands on my behalf on their system because new employees, they don't want to cause any kind of problem. When When you go to that woman who's worked there for 45 years and try to get her to do something she shouldn't do, i'm gonna fail she's gonna tell me no way i don't know who
2: you are but that new employee who got hired last week he or she is likely to do whatever i tell them to do social engineering is just one way that con artists can steal your information some techniques are much more lo-fi here's daw again talk about like, walking up to the mailbox
1: so walking up to a mailbox is always done at night at night people people will typically put out at night going outgoing bills at night for the mail lady or man next morning when you walk up to the mailbox, as an identity thief, you're looking for outgoing mail, not so much incoming mail.
2: And what about dumpster diving?
1: Yeah, dumpster diving is old school. I don't think that it is as effective in today's time. Most corporations and companies have done away with the dumpster method of disposing of consumer data by having these on-site shredding companies.
2: What about skimmers? Are they still being used?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Skimmer, that little handheld device. That does not look like it poses or presents much harm or threat. It is very much alive and relevant in today's payment card fraud market.
2: And what do the skimmers look like and how do they work?
1: Um, skimmers look like a, a, a very small, handy credit card reader. A skimmer is about the size, half the size of a credit card, and it can be worn around your neck. What I would instruct my info operatives to do was to wear their skimmers around their neck as if it's part of their employee badges. And that way you're putting it in plain sight. And you're not having to dig in your pocket, you're not having to go out the way to make the transaction with the card and skimmer unusual.
2: I wanted to learn more about skimmers. How big of a problem are skimmers?
1: Well, I know
3: they were a big problem. Uh, I'm sure there's still a problem. I don't think they're as prevalent as they were. 10 years ago, even longer, stealing credit card information was then used to clone a credit card and then go buy stuff in person. That is very risky. It still happens, but
2: it's very risky. So if you steal somebody's credit card information and you order stuff for yourself, I mean, doesn't that lead investigators right to your doorstep? I guess the amateurs
3: might, the good thieves, I hate to use that term, they're never going to send something directly to them. They might send it to an abandoned house where they can watch for it and go get it. That's actually pretty risky as well. Typically they will use third party people. They will put out an ad online saying, we need secret shoppers. They will tell them, hey, we're going to send you some products. When you get it, you need to forward them onto this address. There'll be some big elaborate story about why you're doing this and how much money you're going to get paid. And then when the police do investigate, they end up finding the people who really did not mean to commit the crime. Before you freak out, don't worry,
2: skimmers have a flaw.
3: Skimmers don't grab all of the information on a credit card when you think of that magnetic stripe on the back of your credit card, there's some very valuable information such as the name and the credit card number. What's not on there are things like the three-digit security code. So if I skim, if I just grab the data from your card, I don't have that three-digit code, which an online company is going to want before they send the product. If I have a photo of the front and back of your credit card, I have the number, I have your name, I have the expiration, and I have the three-digit or four-digit security code, I can now do much more damage than just with the data from
2: the magnetic stripe. Many times we go to restaurants, I just put my credit card, I slip it in that card holder, and I hand it over to the waitress, and she disappears. Is there any way around that? I mean, how could we avoid this? Well, it depends on how far of the paranoia
3: you want to go down. I think if you know me by now, I, I have my own strategies for this.
2: Michael Basil carries a credit card with a disabled magnetic strip. He has a machine that writes data on the card and erases all the information. I've basically
3: overwritten it with bad information. The chip will work, but skimming it would not work. That is
2: the only credit card I will allow out of my sight. He also scratched off the code written on the back of the card. So if someone takes a picture of the front and the back of the card it's pretty much useless but before you get any ideas doing this goes against the terms of your credit card company so we don't recommend it let's talk about the emv chips that everybody has them now on their cards and you have to insert your card now instead of swiping why do we still have the magnetic stripe on our cards if we have the chip
3: i still on occasion encounter a place that does not allow me to use the chip, they want me to swipe the card. I don't have a good reason of why they don't just eliminate the the magnetic stripe with the exception of because it allows people to use it more often at more places to generate more income for the credit card companies.
2: Do you feel like the EMV chips are actually making us safer? I do
3: because the companies who do demand that you use the chip, that is a much more secure way of making the transaction. The chips are much better. It's a much better layer of privacy. But as long as we have that magnetic stripe in the back, we're never going to completely eliminate that part of the risk.
2: I looked it up and I think I could just order an EMV chip from China. Could I just reprogram it? If you're a really good one, I think that possibility
3: exists. There are many hurdles in your way but also you're going to need physical access to my card as well. So yes, you can order a chip. Yes, you can order a card with a chip on it. Yes, you can order a programmer that allows you to program that chip.
2: But Michael says that even if you do all this, the ID thief is going to run into problems. He's not going to say that exploiting the chip on your card is impossible, but it's highly unlikely. Let's talk about Apple Pay and some of these touchless payment methods. Are those more secure? They're more secure than,
3: say, the magnetic stripe. All of these different touchless types of payment all have a lot of security layers in them. None of them are completely
2: bulletproof, but they are very good. Okay, let's get back to the different techniques identity thieves use to get your information. Let's talk about account takeovers. An email account takeover is when a fraudster uses your stolen username and password from a data breach and then locks you out of your own email account. Here's how it works.
3: Let's say that I download a data breach and Javier is in it. I see your email address. Let's say it's a Gmail account. I see the password that you've used for that site. I then take all of that information. I plug it into a script. That script tries to use those email addresses and those passwords to log into everyone's account in that breach. Now I can manually pick you out at random, log into your email account, and if I get in, Now I can do all kinds of fun stuff. First, I'm going to lock you out. I'm going to change the password and get rid of you so that you can't come in and kick me out. Next, I'm going to start looking around. What do you have? Do you have bank information? Do you have a statement from Bank of America? Well, then I'm probably going to try that same password over at Bank of America. Can I get in there? Do you have a PayPal statement in your trash? If so, I'm going to go to PayPal and see if that password that you used works there as well. And if it doesn't, no big deal, I'll just reset your password. Remember, I have access to your email. I can go to any of your online accounts and say, I forgot my password, reset it, and the password reset request goes to your right email. back to your email address, which I have access to. If I can take over
2: your email account, I can really take over your entire digital life. Now let's talk about the easiest way to throw off an identity thief. A lot of email clients have already incorporated two-factor authentication, has that helped any?
3: Oh, drastically. Unfortunately, it's, it's optional. You have to opt into it. And I don't know of any email providers that mandate two-factor authentication.
2: Two-factor authentication, by the way, is the code that's sent to your cell phone when you're trying to log into your account. It's very important that you enable the security feature whenever possible. When you do that and a criminal picks
3: you out, they almost always say, well, then I'm done. I'll go to the next person who's much easier. If you have two-factor authentication turned on, I'm probably going to go to the next person because they're just an easier target.
2: We talked about millennials being a big target, and we know that the elderly is a big target for identity theft. Who else is at risk? Children, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't think
3: about. You don't think about your five-year-old son as a good victim for identity theft, when in reality, it's a great victim because there's probably 13 years that'll go by until that person ever tries to get credit in their name to realize, oh, my identity was stolen.
2: What are they doing with your child's information?
3: Anyone with a social security number can be a good victim for identity theft. If you have a date of birth and a social security number, you have the potential to build credit. The, the things we're looking for here Is your child receiving mail? Any kind of pre-approved credit card offers in the mail or really just any kind of marketing mail at all, that's a big sign that someone's used their name or their name and social security number to try to establish some type of credit. That's the big sign that somewhere at some time, someone's used your child's information to either try to build credit or gain credit. You need to start doing some investigation into that.
2: And so what can we do to protect our children? You can do a credit freeze. Most states allow
3: anyone with a social security number, including a minor, to establish a credit freeze. That's a huge thing you can do. And next, if you do find out that your child has been victimized with identity theft, you need to contact the credit bureaus to let them know they're a child, this is a victim of a crime, and set that record straight now Otherwise, in 10 years, when they need to get that first car loan or home loan, they're going to have a big problem to go through because they have a a 10 year old collection over their heads that has ruined their credit. What's the
2: difference between a credit freeze and an identity protection service?
3: well the identity protection service is really just insurance you've seen all these different companies who say well 20 bucks a month will guard your identity if you have a an identity protection service it doesn't make you hack proof it just makes that company responsible to fix the problem if you do get hacked but the credit freeze is something you do yourself it's free and in my opinion it's just about as good as the identity protection services and there's no cost so i haven't frozen
2: my credit yet well that's good to know for (laughs) me right now it just sounds scary and it sounds anything doing with your credit just sounds complicated but i'm going to go through the process and i'm going to actually record the process oh nice yeah but i have some questions for you once i go through with this am i going to be able to unfreeze it let's say i want to buy a car Uh, how do i unfreeze it is that going to be a
3: hassle it it won't be much of a hassle today so many people are freezing their credit it's just an automated thing it's really not a big deal you can unfreeze it very easily is it instant It is instant. I had one recently with my credit card. Uh, I had to apply for a new business credit card. They ran a, a poll on my credit and immediately told me, you have a credit freeze. They told me, you have a credit freeze through TransUnion, so you need to release that freeze. And if you want to, I can hold while you do that. While I'm on the phone, I muted my microphone, I went online, I went to their website, I unfroze my credit live, and then TransUnion gave me a code. And I gave that code to the credit card company, which allowed them to bypass
2: the credit freeze without actually unfreezing my entire credit. Another thing the listeners could do is also get a credit report just to see if there's any unusual activity in their account. Should they do that before they do the credit freeze or after?
3: What I recommend is because you can get a credit report from all three of the major credit bureaus. What I usually do is I get one first. But not all of them. Just get one to take a look and see how things look. Is there any problems? And if there are some major problems, like a bunch of loans that you don't recognize, you may not want to freeze just yet. Let's get all that straightened out first. But then. After I freeze everything, I want to run my credit report afterward. And you only get to run your credit report once for free for each of the three credit unions per year. Once I have all the credit freezes in place, I want to run my credit report again in order to make sure that that report reflects that my credit is actually frozen. And it will say that within your report.
2: So don't check all three reports at the same time because you're basically blowing it, right? You're blowing all your chances to monitor it throughout the year. Run one
3: get your credit frozen, run the second one, wait a few months, and then run that third
2: credit bureau to see how those reports look. And hopefully you're safe and you just go about with life. So once you run the report, you're going to see all these credit cards you've opened, the Macy's card, the Best Buy card, the Target card or whatever. What do you do with all those cards? I'm not
3: a financial expert. So some people will say, don't close your oldest card because that helps your credit rating i don't ever say to clients close all your old credit cards because that could impact your credit score which a hey, by the way a credit freeze does not impact your credit score however all those little cards that like you just said the macy's card or the the store branded cards that you haven't used forever i do recommend close all those out if you're not using it close it with the exception of your oldest credit card if your credit score is important
2: to you Okay, I'm doing this. First, I have to check my credit score and make sure I don't see anything unusual. Okay, I checked, everything looks good. So now it's time to call the credit bureau and get my credit freeze. Here we go.
0: If you are calling regarding a security freeze or fraud alert, say freeze or press two for help with fraudulent activity related. A freeze will prohibit us from releasing any information in your credit report without your consent. To place a freeze on your credit report, Say freeze or press 1 to return to the main menu. Congratulations, your file is now frozen and unable to be accessed by third parties. You'll receive your confirmation... Okay,
2: that wasn't so bad. Now I have to do the same for the remaining bureaus. Remember, you can do most of this online.
0: We have successfully frozen your account. Thank you. I'm
2: only calling over the phone so you can hear the process. Now that I've frozen my credit, I should also get a Fraud Alert. It's an extra layer of protection to prevent someone from stealing your identity. So who is an ideal victim for identity theft? The perfect
3: victim for identity theft is the person who doesn't check their records. It's the person who never runs their credit report to make sure everything looks good. It's the person who never checks their email security settings to see if someone's been logging into it from an unknown source or an IP address from another country. The people who check their stuff and stay on top and do their credit freeze and the fraud alert and they, they block all their stuff down, those people don't make good victims. Remember, most of these attacks aren't targeted towards you. They're targeted towards a list of 10,000 people who would make the best victims. If you're not the lowest hanging fruit, you've already made yourself much less vulnerable just by doing a few things.
2: And do you think that technology will one day outsmart the identity thief?
3: No, and the reason is because there's always a human element. You can have the best technology in the world, which is, let's just say it's hack-proof. There's still a human being that can override. There's a human being programming things. your bank might have the best technology in the world and I can't get into your site. But if I can call and get that employee who is sympathetic to whatever story I make up about you saying that I am you, that can override things real quickly. As long as there's a human element in this whole chain, no, we will never make it foolproof.
2: I want to thank D'Artagnan Williams, AKA DAW, for sharing his story. It's not every day that you get to hear firsthand from an identity thief. I also want to thank Michael Basil for co-hosting this series with me. It was a lot of information to get through, and you might actually have to listen to this series more than once, but this time with a martini in hand. Trying to disappear can be daunting, but I know that I've been putting it off for way too long. So you wanted to turn the tables on me. You wanted to ask me some questions. Well, we've been doing this series. You've been on my show and you always
3: play the interviewer, which is a great role for you. But I want to turn the tables a bit and I have questions for you. After all this time, I guess my first question is on a scale of one to 10, when you met me, how crazy did you think this all was and where are you at today?
2: Well, I got to admit, I've never really been that big into privacy. I've always had this lifestyle of I have nothing to hide. And so what if somebody finds my information online? What are they going to do with it? Now, looking back, knowing what I know now, it seems really naive to think that way. I, I, I thought you were very extreme and... It just seemed like we were in two different worlds. And today, I feel like I value my privacy a lot more. And I I might not go to the extreme levels that maybe you do or some of your clients do. But I definitely feel like that guy who thought that who cares if somebody gets my information that guy doesn't exist anymore.
3: Well, talk to me about some of the changes you have made and let's go all the way back to day one when I first was on your show talking about the digital side of things. What have you changed?
2: Well, I knew that you could find my information on people search websites because that's what I use to find subjects on my show. If I'm looking for a con artist or the victims, I use these tools. These are great tools. I'm able to get their email, their, their phone number and more if I pay for it or if I look long enough. But I never thought about somebody looking at me since then. I, I've been shocked at how many people. Different databases actually have my information, and I feel a little violated by being so exposed out there. I've read your books, and you have a, a great workbook in within your book where it shows you all the websites that store all your personal information. I have your book right right by my keyboard. I flip to a certain database and I opt out. <laughs> and this process takes forever. And so then I, when I opt out, I check off, I, I write a note saying, hey, I've requested to opt out. And then I check it off as soon as I get confirmation that I've officially been opt out of the database. And I do this almost every day routinely. So it's this long process that seems ridiculous that we have to go through to live a private life, but I've totally bought into it now.
3: Do you think the people search websites are where
2: you are most vulnerable? All you have to do is go to the county clerk's website and then boom, I'm right there because I own a home. So it almost seems like a futile mission to erase myself from these databases when all you have to do is search the county clerk's office and there I am.
3: I smell a quick claim deed in your future at the county clerk. We're gonna, we're gonna get that trust <laughs> built up. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a, a bonus episode later.
2: Yeah, we're gonna have to do a follow-up yeah. when, when I become a nomad.
3: So let's say that I'm a crazy listener. I don't like what you said on show number 10 or whatever. I come looking for you today How quickly would I find you if I weren't going right to the county clerk to get your tax record?
2: i don't know i i'd still even after all the work that i've put into it to try to disappear i still feel like i'm out there and it wouldn't take very long to find me it's so easy if you just put a little bit of effort i still think you could find me sure
3: well i hear from a lot of people who start the path down that workbook of removing all of their stuff and they say it gets kind of addicting do you have the privacy bug now
2: I definitely have the bug. Uh, Whether I want to go all the way, I'm still in the back of my head, very skeptical of the whole thing of living so extreme because I feel like there's that trade-off between ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) There's so many dangers out there that sometimes it's easier to ignore them. It's about keeping some privacy in your life so that it makes it harder for people to find you while still living a comfortable life where I'm not paranoid. So I'm trying to find that balance. I'll
3: throw one more out there. Let's say that you take the extreme dive and you have the home in the name of the trust, your cars in the name of the LLC, your home address isn't on anything. You've just rebooted everything and you are a ghost. Would that change the content of your show in regard to maybe being more aggressively saying things that you might be cautious of saying now?
2: I'm jealous of those podcasters who have thought of that, you know, like swindled, like, you know, he's the a concerned citizen. Nobody knows his name. The trade-off to that is that sometimes, you know, a lot of my stories are feature type stories. So they're not like hard hitting news, but sometimes I, I do for, like a full fledged investigation and I go after some real bad guys. But and I feel like there's a, a trusting with with the when I approach somebody who I want to interview. Like if if I'm anonymous and I'm not giving up a piece of me, how do I expect them to give a, a, up a piece of them? Because every time I do a story, I'm asking somebody to reveal something about themselves, and really in in a very intimate way. I feel like it's a two-way street. So if I'm really cold and and I mask myself from society, I wonder how open people would be with me. Those are fair points. Uh, and
3: I guess in my world, I don't think about that as much because I'm trying to hide people and I'm trying to hide myself. And I'm typically not reaching out to people and asking them to open up. I'm typically reaching out to people and saying, how do we close you down?
2: No, I wanted to tell you that one thing I feel like I could check off my my list and I feel very successful at is that I use a password manager now. That I feel very good about because I feel like my bank account is not exposed anymore. I'm not recycling passwords. So everything that's tied to anything financial is now using a unique password that I don't even know. And I love that. And
3: that's something anyone can do for free without being paranoid crazy. You don't have to go down this extreme route. Everyone should be doing that. Well, I truly appreciate just taking an interest for this show. I have a bit of concern that I've created a monster. So apologize to your wife for (laughs) me for that.
2: (laughs) I talked to her about it and she sort of kind of gets it. But she's not, you know, like she's me before this process started, right? Like she doesn't really value it. It's not until you really... Realize all the the areas where you could be exposed, and I and I think that some of your your clients they naturally buy into it because they have a reason to. They're running away from somebody, or they have a legitimate reason to disappear. And 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 I fear that a lot of people listening to this right now, especially my audience, not your audience, because your audience is kind of kind of geared to think this way. But my audience, they're probably like, hey, I'm not Taylor Swift. I'm not you know a judge or anybody trying to run away i feel like maybe they would feel like this this series doesn't relate to them and and i hope that maybe by at the end of this they realize well maybe you don't have to take the extreme route but maybe there are bits and pieces of this lifestyle that you could adopt so that you could be proactive and not be a victim when it's too late
3: well if your wife truly doesn't want to jump on board which is understandable i know a guy we can arrange a kidnapping throw in a van for a couple of hours (laughs) and then you tell her this is why we don't put our address online
2: it's called extreme motivation (laughs) so michael we talked about your book you actually have several books that i'm going to link to in the show notes but you also have a podcast for listeners who want to learn more about this where can they find you yeah, if you come to
3: IntelTechniques.com or just search for the Privacy, Security, and OSINT show, it's a weekly podcast. I will warn your listeners now that we, we go down quite a few rabbit holes. We get a bit paranoid, but we talk about extreme privacy and security. Uh, but people are welcome to come check that out.
2: Next time on Pretend...
0: I fell for the oldest con in the book, the inheritance scam. Except it wasn't some Nigerian prince emailing me in my spam folder. It was a living, breathing, lovable woman.
2: It's true. Jonathan Walton fell for the oldest trick in the book, but in his defense, he was outwitted by a pro. Marion Smith conned him out of almost
0: $100,000 until you dealt with someone like this, it's the furthest thing from your mind that doesn't even enter.
2: Right. That's the whole thing. You, they have to disarm you. They have to earn your trust. I mean, this is when I say this is classic, this is classic. Oh no, I
0: know. Well, listen, I'm a con artist expert. I've interviewed hundreds of victims now. Yeah, she did everything by the book. So she gets zero points for originality, but she gets an A for creativity and stealth.
2: So you don't think any time during your friendship that none of that was genuine?
0: No, that was all an act. She's a brilliant actress. She certainly missed her calling. She could cry at the drop of a freaking hat. And so many times she was crying, convulsing, and I was holding her in my arms. And I believed it. I mean, when a woman's crying in your arms, how do you not believe that? But but that was naive of me because I'd never been conned before. I'd never met someone like Mary Ann Smith.
2: That's next time on Pretend.
1: Creative Babble.